going to be all good. Hello. How many are in there? <laughs> Come out in Jesus' name. All right. Uh, while we're, you know, trying to figure this out, we have our beautiful Australian and American uh, ushers standing by, giving you handouts if you need handouts, uh, talking about the papers that you write on money. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why we do that. But uh, yeah, if you need uh, an outline or something, just slip up your hand and how does Pete Lee say it? The ushers will give it to you. The ushers will ush. Yes. The ushers will ush. Yes, that's what they do. That's their vocation. All right. How's that? Check, right. check. Good. Right. All right. All right. Great. It's just, you know, I could say it's on purpose to make a point, and uh, maybe I have a point for it later. What I was saying is, as I was preparing this, I had a lot of things that would come to mind, and I'd be like, oh, that is really good. This is so important. And when you have 35 minutes to do a sermon, sometimes it can be difficult to fit all those in there. And if I fit them all in there, at the end of the sermon, you may say, that was really good, but I have no idea what he was talking about. So what I expect, <laughs> I, I do have uh, things prepared, and what I expect is that the Lord will speak to you some of the things that are important for you in the sermon. It always works like that, right? But today I especially have expectancy that this will happen. And uh, as I said, or as Lance said as he introduced me, we had a family meeting about a month ago. I was very impressed uh, with that meeting, I was impressed with our leader's humility. I was impressed with the willingness to hear, with the willingness to look at difficult things and say, well, this should have worked, it didn't. What do we need to do to change it, right? And uh, one of the things we were talking about in that time was this desire to do more outreach. And outreach is great. I've been a missionary for about 20 years now. I love outreach, believe in it. But I've also been looking at a few things recently that made me want to talk more about this because uh, the question is why do we want to do outreach? Do we want to do outreach because we think it gives us some more value in our Christian life? Or do we want to do outreach because, you know, that's how we share the love of God? Seems to be a small difference, but a really significant difference. And what I've come to realize over the last months is that as a church and uh, as a missionary, uh, thing keeps turning off. There we go. It likes my face. Good. We have oftentimes devalued the work that you do on a day-to-day -day basis and put on a pedestal the work that we do for the church. Are you with me? And that's what I want to talk about today, uh, this topic of vocation. And what is vocation? It's not vocation. Dave just came back from Montana, right? We probably all need that, but vocation comes from the Latin term. Okay, now I lost you all. <laughs> Latin term vocare or vocare, which means to call. It has to do with calling, right? It has to do with the things we do. And of course, calling is one of those big questions we ask, right? What, what am I to do with my life? What's my calling? I remember teaching, substitute teaching at Abundant Life Christian School in the Bible class. And I would make myself available for the, uh, to the seniors to grab a coffee and talk more about things on their heart. And when we did that, the biggest question they always said was, what am I supposed to do with my life? And oftentimes there was the sense, I, I know I should be a youth pastor. I know I should be a pastor. I should be a missionary because that's valuable. What am I supposed to do with my life? And, you know, as a missionary who knows that the Fields are ripe for harvest, and the laborers are few. I was like, yeah, man, you should be a missionary. 
And now I've come to realize that that is maybe not the most useful way of going about this. And that's what I want to talk about today. I believe that God will speak to you. I believe that he will validate things in you and encourage you. Your life can be changed today. Okay? And that's what I expect and pray for. Um, somebody that can say it much better than me, I think, is a man named Sky Jatani, a teacher whose materials we used in our uh, spiritual formation course where I got a lot of these ideas. So I actually want to have him come up here, uh, FaceTime in. No, actually, he's going to be, just be on YouTube video. But uh, we're going to hear from him. Uh, so if we can look at this uh, video, this will help us understand more how this can work and why we have been so wound up in thinking that spiritual work is more important than all other work. Does that make sense? So, Sky, please take it away. A couple of years ago, a student came to me. He was near graduation, and he was very anxious about what he was supposed to do with his life. And he was a pre-med major, always thought he was supposed to be a cardiologist, but he came to me because he said he thought maybe he should be a missionary. And I asked him why. Why didn't he want to go into medicine anymore? And he said because he really wanted his life to count. And he didn't think that being a cardiologist, which had been his plan, was really a significant life anymore. But he had a lot of anxiety about it, a lot of stress. So we spent a good time together, and I started digging deeper, not into what his particular calling might be, but into his relationship with God. And what I quickly discovered was that this student had bought into an idea that the value and significance of his life depended entirely upon what he did with it. What was the output of his life? What kind of impact would he have in the world? He bought in the idea that he was defined by his circumstances. And at least in the environment he had been raised in, the circumstances of missions were much more significant than the circumstances of medicine. What he suffered from, I think, is one of the problems that we've encountered as a church because we've abandoned the theology of vocation. And what I mean by that is not just a theology of work, but a theology of calling. The word vocation comes from the word vocare, which means to call. And for an awful lot of Christian history, that word, that sense of calling, really only belonged to a small sliver of people in the church, and that was clergy. In the fourth century, the bishop of Caesarea Eusebius came up with this idea that there were two forms of Christian life. There was what he called the perfect life, which belonged to the clergy. They were the ones who had a calling or a vocation. Everyone else, he said, just had a permitted life. There was nothing particularly important or special about what they did. It was just toil on the earth. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation and the engagement more meaningfully with Scripture that that idea came to be challenged. And the Protestant reformers realized that Every believer has a calling. We all have a vocation from God that needs to be validated and seen as a good and positive thing in this world. So Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many others changed this idea that only some people had a perfect life and instead embraced that all Christians were given specific work by God to do in this world for His glory and for the benefit of His kingdom. The Puritans came along and they developed a more nuanced theology of vocation that I found really, really helpful. What they acknowledge is that every Christian actually has three simultaneous callings. First and foremost, they said, we all have a highest calling. This is where we get our sense of identity, significance, value. They said our highest calling is to live in communion with God himself. That in our intimacy with Christ, we discover who we truly are and the dignity that we inhabit as his people. This is what that student hadn't really figured out. He didn't get his identity and significance from his communion with Christ, and so he was looking for it in the specific work he was going to do in the world. And ultimately, that leads to idolatry. 
where the work we do becomes the source of our significance, our identity, and even what the drive and meaning of our life becomes. In a sense, we can actually make the mission of Christ into an idol, which is a dangerous and frightening thing for those of us who have given our lives to the work of the gospel in the world, to think that maybe it could distract us from Christ himself. So our highest calling, to live in unity with God. Then the Puritan said, every Christian has a set of common callings. These are the commands that apply to all believers in all places at all times. Things like love your neighbor as yourself and be uh, committed to your spouse. Do not commit adultery. Don't commit murder. Give to the one who asks of you. Forgive the one who's wronged you. Our common callings are pretty simple to find. You open up the pages of Scripture and you read the commands of God to His people. No one can say that because of the time or place I live that that particular command doesn't apply to me. So common callings are ones we often talk about in the church, we preach about and communicate pretty broadly. But the Puritans went one step further, and they recognized that every Christian also has a set of specific callings, or what they called particular callings. These are callings that are specific to the individual. So I'm specifically called to be the husband of my wife and the father of my children, and I'm specifically called to be a minister of the gospel. Others, however, have different specific callings to medicine or teaching or farming or you can name a mazillion different uh, vocations that they might have. The problem is, because we've lost the theology of vocation, we don't validate those callings anymore. And what we tend to tell believers in the church is that you need to be engaged in more and more of our common callings, things like mission and evangelism, in order to get validation in the church. And we ignore the specific callings of people. So this student who came up to me had really never been a part of a Christian community that validated medicine or seen doctors or nurses or anybody in the medical profession as celebrated as servants of Christ in the world. And because of that, he only saw people in ministry being needed to do in order to be significant and valued. This leads to two bad things. Number one, it attracts people into ministry for the wrong reason, not because they're gifted or called, but because they're looking for significance, and it devalues those who aren't called to ministry, and they begin to feel like second-class Christians. So one of the things I really think we need to do, both for the health of the mission of the gospel, but also for the health of all of God's people in this world, is recapture this incredibly important biblical and reformed theology of vocation that brings dignity and value to everyone's life and calling, and more than anything else, reminds us that our highest calling is to be in Christ and not just His work. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. Uh, so what do you think about this? How many of you identify with these ideas that Sky talks about. Uh, how many of us can identify with the struggle the student had that came to talk to Sky? Like, I want my life to count. And in order for it to count, I gotta do ministry. Now, I'm not looking for a show of hands, but somehow that idea is in us. It's been here since 400 when Eusebius said, this is how it works, right? And since we have experienced the sacred secular split where we say this is holy and this is important, everything happening in the church is good, everything else is just secular and ugh, we suffer from the same thing, right? Uh, how many of us can relate to the feeling that a Christian community does not validate your specific calling and the specific thing that you do? And if that's the case, what, what are things that you're longing to hear? What are things that you need to hear? What are things that you need as support to do what you do from Monday through Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whenever you work? What are the things that you need? Because the church is called to equip us for good works. And this is not just works that we do on our free time for outreach, but that's the work we do every day. What do you need? 
What are you longing to hear? And I hope that this sermon today can put in your heart something that says, maybe what I do is important. Maybe it is pleasing to God, and maybe He cares. Or maybe definitely, definitely maybe, right? Okay. <laughs> and I want to ask for your forgiveness as a minister of the gospel for making you feel like second-class Christians at times. In the way I write my newsletter, in the way that I uh, communicate about my ministry, in the way that I say, oh, I've been a missionary for 20 years, oh, you're very important. Because that was never my intention, but I know that in this culture we permeate these things, right? I am living off financial support, and people need to find value to support me, and so I feel like I got to show the stories where you shine, right? And be like, look, if you give your money to me, if you give your money to the church, if you do this, this is what happens with your money. Is giving to missions important? Yes. Is giving to the church important? Yes. But not because they're more important than you. Okay? So outreach is good. Missions is good. Church is good. It's good to give to these things, but it's also good to give for the right reasons. Of course, it could be a debate on what that is, and another <laughs> teaching series on that, right? So that I can be blessed, so that, you know. Uh, so let's review what we just watched and talk about this a little bit more. So Sky talked about three types of callings. Highest calling, common calling, and specific calling, right? What's the highest calling? The highest calling is to be with God. It is not to do outreach. It is not to preach. It is about being. Being is more important than the things you do. Why? Because this is where your identity comes from. This is where you find your validation. This is where you hear God say to you, I love you. I am pleased with you. Yes, you're broken. And I don't care. I love you anyway. Right? This is where we get our identity and our significance. If we don't get it here, we will try to find it in the things we do. And then if we don't believe that our specific calling matters, we will try to find it in the outreach we do. And then your outreach and your work for Christ becomes idolatry. Because you're doing it to please yourself and to find the value that you already have been given, that you recognize when you are with God. So being with God is a state of being that you enter in when you become a believer. Right? It's not just, okay, I'm going to take my, ho my holy quiet time now. You're always in God's presence. He's always with you. Does that make sense? Okay. So, common calling. What's the common calling? Common calling is basically what all believers at all times at all places are called to do as Christians. All right? Things like love your neighbor as yourself. Be committed to your spouse. Don't murder. Give to the one that asks of you. Forgive the one who has wronged you. Welcome the stranger. Love your enemy. Our common calling is relatively easy to find in the pages of Scripture, right? And we, that's what we talk about in church. These are the things you do as a Christian. And you could summarize common calling. And I want you to get this because this is going to be important for how we're going to look at our life. You could summarize common calling to live selfless lives, loving ourselves and others. Because the love of God is changing us. All right? To live selfless lives in service of God and others, loving ourselves and loving others because the love of God is changing us. If we live like that in our daily work, how do things change? 
Maybe you're already doing it and you have testimonies and we should hear them. But yeah, how do things change? And then there's specific calling. Are you guys with me? Highest calling, common calling, specific calling. The specific calling is what God has specifically given you to do. For me, my specific calling is to be a husband to my wife, to be a father to my two kids. It is to be a minister of the gospel, specifically in Madison, but also all over the world. But there's more. I'm, I also have a specific calling to work in broadcast, which is something I've been doing, as I say, on the side, because my full-time calling, whatever, is being a missionary. And God has been opening some awesome doors for me. And, you know, I always thought this is just kind of a side gig to get uh, extra money that we couldn't raise as support. But I've come to realize that it's so much more that God has actually given me a calling here and that I need to see it as that. It's not less valuable than the work I do when I do what's under my job description as a minister of the gospel. So how can I explain this in a different way? Um, a few years ago, I was working with a leadership team in our Fos house. And Fos house is a house, Fos is Greek for light. It's a house we have on Langdon Street where UW students can live in intentional Christian community. It's ran by missionaries and youth with a mission. And that created a dilemma. It created an atmosphere where we as missionaries expected our students to live like full-time missionaries that only do clergy work, right? We were permeating this idea that we're talking about today. You know, our staff were missionaries supported to do their work, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's their specific calling. But we were lacking this idea that the students had a specific calling, and that was the, the calling to be a student. Are you guys with me? Our highest calling is to be in communion with God. Our common calling is to live the gospel wherever we are. But we forgot that specific calling is there. And, you know, we made it all about common calling. It's this idea that's wrong that says that the only thing that matters is what you do for the church. Why is it wrong? Because it ignores the fact that God has given you a specific calling. In this case, to be a student. Right? For some of us, it's to be a butcher, to be a teacher a garbage man, a doctor, a sales clerk, a barista, I don't know, a CPA, a housewife, mother, okay? And we do it all for God's glory. So we wanted these guys to live and act like professional missionaries. We wanted them to attend worship. We wanted them to attend prayer times. We wanted them to do outreach. We wanted them to attend small groups. We wanted them to evangelize. You're already tired, right? <laughs> we... Uh, we wanted them to spend all their time doing all these things, preaching to their classmates whenever, you know, possible. Uh, and we wanted them to prioritize these things really over their studies and classes. We would have never said that, but that was our mindset. Yeah. And if they didn't do these things, we would be somehow disappointed or frustrated or they just don't get it. And at this point, I was seeking the Lord and he helped me understand this and he gave me a, a, a small talk that I did uh, with the students at a get-together. And the best way I could explain this to them, I don't know if I it would say it exactly like this today, but the best way I could explain it to them was this. I said to them, look, we are missionaries. We have a zeal for missions. We already have this problem that we think that missions work is more important than all other work. And because of that, there's pressure on you to live like missionaries that preach the gospel. This means that we have been neglecting when, uh, that we have been celebrating when you've been, been neglecting being a student, right? 
But God has given you the calling to be a student right now. And the way I explained it to them to understand this is this. I said, maybe you're God's answer to prayer right now to a woman that can't give her children clean water. You're getting an engineering degree. And your calling is to study hard and work hard because God may be using you as an answer to prayer for this woman to bring clean water to places where there's none. Right, that's one example. Another example was maybe you're God's answer to prayer to a mother that's crying out to God because she's afraid for their children because of racial injustice in the system. Maybe you're God's answer to prayer to the man who has a rare form of cancer where there's no research that has been done yet, no cure that has been found. And as you work hard and you do what God has put before you, he will use your work to answer that prayer. You see that God is working, he's working in so much on a so much deeper level than we could ever imagine. And what we are called to do is do our specific calling with diligence. So this changed everything in our house. Students felt validated in their studies. And I remember uh, talking to a girl that said, yeah, that was really impactful. It stopped making me feel condemned for not being a better Christian. And it really helped me focus on my studies the way I should. Because being a student is hard, man. Studying is hard. It's much nicer to go to a worship time that makes you feel good. <laughs> Which is important too, right? And needed. You get the point. So in Acts 18, we find this uh, story about Paul. It says here, Acts 18, 1 to 3, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy. He was a, a refugee with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Okay, what, what, did, that, what did that say? Paul was a tent maker. A tent maker. What, what do tent makers do? Some random work that helps them finance their mission work, right? No, they make tents, exactly. It's a very specific thing. You know, I used to hear people talk about Paul being a tent maker quite a bit, and I always thought it was kind of a necessary evil. He did not have the skills to raise the funds he needed for his ministry, so he needed to be a tent maker, right? It, it, it's second best or maybe worst. You know, if you're a missionary, you don't want to be a tent maker. That's no good. It means you failed. <laughs> and that view was informed by my view of missions, and that missions is better than secular work. Right? Missionaries were living the perfect life while everybody else was living the permitted life. See that? Paul never saw it like that. You know, in Colossians 3, verse 23, he says this. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean when Paul makes tents? The Roman government would buy those tents for their troops. He didn't make them for the Roman government. He made them as if he made them for the Lord. And how do we do things for the Lord? Well, Lord, you know my heart, so you know this tent is kind of crappy, but it's good enough. <laughs> Somehow we have that thinking in us sometimes, you know, oh, it's good enough, it's for the Lord, so... Do we do a specific calling as for the Lord rather than people? 
you know, what type of quality do you think Paul had when he made these tents? Uh, these tents did had. You know what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> what was the quality? It was probably really good because he was an intense dude. And if he did everything as for the glory of God, those were like nice tents. Yeah, Mercedes tents. Now think about this. Uh, Jesus was a carpenter. What do carpenters do? Make stuff, right? Make tables and make houses, stuff like that. When we were remodeling a house recently, I was sitting down with Dave, who was working with us, Dave Payne. I think Justin knows him. Some of the guys know him. And uh, we're in the chaos of the construction, and he looks at me. He's like, you're a man of the word, aren't you? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know who was a carpenter like me? I was like, no. <laughs> the big JC. <laughs> and he smiled, and he's like, yeah. <laughs> And it opened this conversation we had. And this guy was not a necessarily a spiritual guy, but man, he's like, that validates what I do. You know, this is amazing. And then what kind of carpenter do you think Jesus was? You know, how do you imagine the quality of the stuff that he built? Not very good, so you had to go into ministry, right? <laughs> Careful, it's the Lord we're talking about here. <laughs> you know, do, do we somehow have this idea that Jesus just got through this carpenter earthly stuff to get to his real calling. Yeah, we do, right? What kind of tables did Jesus make? What kind of chairs, what kind of houses did he build? Whatever they did back then in carpentry, right? And you know, what's interesting about this is when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3, what happened? The Lord spoke. The Holy Spirit descended in form of a dove, and then there was a voice, and the voice said what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How many miracles did Jesus do before the baptism? Anybody know? Zero. He did not do a single miracle. The baptism is what got him into ministry, what was his calling or his empowering of ministry. And God is saying to him, I am well pleased in you. He has not done any ministry. And as you hear this, as you see this, Jesus hears this for us because we cannot hear it. We cannot hear the Father say to us, I'm well pleased in you, Matt, in the work you're doing on earth to glorify me and your mind. Maybe you can hear it. But many of us can't. Because we think God is well pleased in ministry. God is well pleased in our preaching. God is well pleased in our outreach. Is God well pleased in the things you do? Yes, he is. That's what he was saying to Jesus. And that's the point. And that's why he was saying this before he ever did any work of ministry or any miracle. Does that make sense? Another teacher we have, Dr. Chris Hall. He talks about the gift of years. He says, God has given us a gift, the gift of years which is a gift of grace. I don't know how long I have on this earth. You don't know how long you have on this earth, but it's a gift that we have been given. And as we live our highest calling, being with God, he gives us things to do. And the way Chris says it, he's this wonderful man, professor. He flies everywhere, even though he's supposed to be retired, deep man of wisdom. He says, God gives me things to do, and it's not a big deal. And you look at him, you go like, you've written over 100 books. You've had all this impact. How can you say it's not a big deal? So it's not a big deal. It's a gift from God. Don't compare. If you compare to what God has given somebody else, you just neglect or you 
disregard the gift he has given you. Or you say, oh, wow, I'm so much better than this person, so there's pride. Says it's a gift God has given you. So if this all is true, what does it say about outreach then? Because all this started, right? Because we want to do more outreach. Outreach is good. Outreach is part of a common calling. Right? But enough thinking in the Western church today, we have to come to believe that outreach in church is the only work of value for the Christian. And that's not true. Your work matters. Your specific calling matters. And if you neglect your specific calling to do outreach, that's not good. If you think about the people that you're with on a daily basis, if you told them, hey, I'm going to leave the office early today or wherever you work, because I'm going to do outreach, how are they going to respond? <laughs> you do outreach? <laughs> with that attitude? <laughs> you have an ability to do outreach all day long, right? So if you see work as a curse and your co-workers as people to be avoided, everyone will be negatively impacted by this, right? And we all, we all have experienced people that don't like their jobs, haven't we? No matter where you go, as a customer, for example, you can feel the difference of someone that loves their job and someone that doesn't. And it's the difference of whether you're going to go back or not, whether you're going to tell your friends to go to that place or not, right? There are many coffee shops in Madison, but like me, you can probably count on three, four, five fingers the ones that are worth going to. Why? Because people take pride in their work. People take their time. They're not just, you know, putting lattes together because they're, okay, another latte is so annoying, blah, blah, blah. You know when that's the case, right? If you are a barista, I hear, I make my own coffee at home, and I think it's better than most, but... Um, you want to make sure you don't have big bubbles in your milk, right? And the, if the milk is the perfect temperature and the perfect consistency, you can do cool latte art, you know? And uh, that shows, I mean, some people may still not care, but like it, it changes the flavor profile of the espresso, right? Am I preaching to anybody here? Lance, Lance is back there. He's like, amen, preach it. There's this McDonald's up in Cottage Grove, and I don't know what they do differently, but when you go and you just order a simple hamburger for a dollar, it tastes amazing. They toast the bun, and they just take their time. It's always the same guys that work when I go there. I used to go pick up my kids up there when they went to school there. Um, and the people care, and it makes a big difference. So it's small things that make it stand out, and it feels like what it comes down to is whether people take pride in their job or not. Or could you say whether they see their job as a place to worship God through the work they do. You know, if you serve your coffee as if you're serving it to Jesus and you love Jesus, you're going to make do it, you're going to give it your best. Right? If you look at somebody's financial profile, you go like, well, I, I know that you're going to die with 33, <laughs> so let's give you some good life insurance. <laughs> no, that's a joke. But if, if, you, if you do your financial profile as if you did it for Jesus who you love, you're going to go out of your way to help people even more, right? You're going to glorify God by the way you do your job. Does, does that make sense? So what would it look like if you, did, if you did your work as worship to Christ? How can you glorify God with the things you've been given to do? 
for such a time as this. He's given you these things. A specific calling may change at times, right? But right now, he has given you certain things to do. Even if you don't have a job, there's things he's given you to do. There's a way that we can glorify him through that. So how does realizing that you have a vocation and that God values your work change the way you see your work? How does that change? That passage we read earlier about do your work as if you did it unto the Lord, Paul was writing that to slaves. They certainly did not love their work. They said, just worship God and in that you find freedom because you're not working for your slave master anymore. You're not working for the Lord. So when people come in contact with your work, what do they experience? As we finish up, I also want to make clear that your job is not to be a preacher at your work, unless you are a preacher. <laughs> All right, that's my job right now. You're not to be a preacher or an evangelist at your work. That's not your primary job. That's this type of thinking of clergy is important, the other stuff doesn't matter, right? Unless the door opens up, like, hey, you're a man of the word, right? Or when we did this uh, setup for CrossFit Games, a guy was like, so, you've read the Bible a few times, tell me about this. Great, wonderful. But how do you get to that? It's not by coming in like, hey, I'm a Christian, you all go to hell, so, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> doesn't work. So glorify God in the way you do your job. And that's going to mean different things in different places and then see what opens up. Paul actually said this. This is in Ephesians 4, 28, 29. It's not in your uh, notes or on the screen. But he says this. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work. And then give generously to others in need. And he says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So he doesn't say, if you're a thief, Jesus redeemed you, now be a missionary. He says, do good, hard work. When the tax collector came to Jesus and said, what should I do? He said, go back to your job and do it justly. Do not rip people off. All right? Uh, for me... When I work with these guys in broadcast, it means to treat everyone with respect and do my job as diligently as I can, right? It means going out of my way, doing things where no one's looking that glorify Jesus because I remind, my, remind myself, maybe it's easier for me because these things are sporadic, right? I can go in there and like, okay, I've got this day to day and I'm going to worship Jesus through this. But oftentimes I will pray over the cables that I have in my hands so they don't tangle up because if they tangle up, you don't see the perfect review, um, what is it, slow motion shot at home, and my cameraman falls, you know. So I ask, Lord, would you bless this cable? And he does, you know. That may seem funny, but to me it also means loading up the truck when we're done in such a way that the person that opens it up on the other end says, wow, where did, where did this truck come from? This is different than what I'm used to. Why? Because I want to glorify God through my work. And he knows when we're tired, he knows when we're weak, he wants to give us grace. But he also knows when we think that the things we do don't matter because it's not outreach. And that's where I want to hear, want you to hear today. God validates what you do. Your, your value comes from being with him, 
but he gives you specific things to do that are holy unto him. I don't know if I can say it any other way. So uh, let's finish up. Do we have time? Yeah. Let's finish up with another short video by Sky Jitani about vocational discipleship. I think it gives us a few things to think about that we had discussed in our family meeting. Um, I'm not suggesting that we do all these things, but it's another thing that I want you to hear when it comes to vocation to work that I think may be helpful for you. So let's, let's watch this. So the second destination that we need to take people to is vocational discipleship. What do I mean by that? Most of our churches are designed to make people into little pastors. We take our calling as pastors to teach the Bible, to evangelize, to spread the faith, and we replicate ourselves in our people. We teach them how to study the Bible. We teach them how to teach the Bible. We teach them how to lead small groups. We teach them how to share their faith. What we don't teach them to do is actually commune with Jesus and do what he wants them to do. One of the great teachings, not to get too kind of sectarian here, but one of the great teachings that came out of the Protestant Reformation was a theology of vocation. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. Prior to the Reformation, it only applied to clergy. It was believed that only priests and monks were called by God or had a calling from God that mattered. Everyone else just labored. They were just workers. But then Luther and Calvin and these other reformers came along and they said, no, 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 no. Every person is called into communion with Jesus and God calls every person to a vocation, to a vocare, to a work in the world that matters for Christ and his kingdom. So if you're a butcher or a farmer or a teacher or a mother, whatever your calling is, it matters to God and his kingdom. So Barna found this interesting bit of data. The young adults who do stay in the church say that four times they're more likely to say that the church teaches me how the Bible relates to my career. Here's the question, and this is a diagnostic question to determine whether your church is destination or your church as vehicle. Is your goal with the people in your church to extract more time and money from them to engage within the institution or do you celebrate the people who disengage from the institution? But as I dug into this pastor's comment, what I realized was, it isn't that this young generation lacks commitment, it's that they're not gonna commit to his agenda. What they're looking for is a pastor who will come alongside them, help them commune with God, and then equip them to go do what Christ is calling them to do in the world, rather than getting them to engage what the pastor wants them to do in the world. That's what I mean by vocational discipleship. Think about what your church would look like if instead of being primarily organized around life stage, it was arranged around vocation, around calling. If all the people in your church who God has called into the medical field were together to support one another, or all the people called into education, or all the people called into the home, or all the people called into business. What does it mean to be an active Christian out in the business world? What does it mean to impact the culture of business or medicine or government for Christ? It's a very different vision of the church. And it's happening in some places, and where it's happening, young people are engaging. I think of my friend Rick McKinley, whose church Imago Dei in Portland does this. They've created a vision in that church where people engage the community, and invariably, people come forward to the church staff and say, hey, I think we should start a ministry to reach out to fill in the blank. And Rick has trained all of his pastors to always give the same answer. When somebody comes and says, we want to start a ministry to do this, you always say the same thing, no. 
Instead, what they do is they look for someone else in the city who's already doing that ministry, whether it's another church or a nonprofit or a government agency. And what these pastors do is equip these Christians to go engage with someone else who's already doing it outside the church. Rick's phrase he uses a lot is no logo, no ego. If it doesn't have to be under the umbrella of my organization, then more is going to get done for the kingdom of God. More people are going to be impacted. And, by the way, we can keep our institution lean and efficient, which is what young people are looking for. So let's wrap up. The core question, is my church a destination or a vehicle? This is the core question, I believe, maybe there's other ways of putting it, for the coming decade. We've bought into the destination idea, grow the church bigger and bigger and bigger with more and more features to attract more and more people and then keep them engaged in the institution. And it's worked brilliantly for boomers. It's showing signs of not working for millennials. What they're hungry for is a church that's going to take them somewhere. First, to take them into deep, rich, meaningful communion with Jesus Christ. And the primary way of doing that is not through a program. It's through prayer. Second thing they're looking for is vocational discipleship. A church, a leader, a team, a community that will come alongside them, validate their communion with Christ, validate their calling in the world, and equip them to meet with God and carry his glory into the midst of a world that desperately needs him. Ephesians 4, Paul says that Christ has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, leaders, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. When you and I hear the word ministry, we think of church work. That's not what Paul meant. There were no institutional churches when he wrote that. What he means is equip the saints to do acts of service in the world that bring glory to God. And in the context of that chapter, it's very clear he means the broader context of the world. Is your church a vehicle that is equipping your people to do that? Or is it a destination, self-contained, marked by institutional growth? Whichever side you fall on may well determine the future flourishing of your community and I believe will determine the flourishing of the church in North America for the years to come. All right. Well, thank you again, Sky. Good word. <laughs> so as we're finishing up, what is God highlighting for you? Is he highlighting something to you about the specific calling he has given you? When you hear this, it's exciting, right? We all get to go out tomorrow and be all over the city, bringing glory to God. Right? Are there areas he's calling you to make a change? Uh, is there a change in perspective that is needed? How you see yourself in your work? Are there actions where you feel he's calling you to make a change so your vocation glorifies him? No. So as we go forth from here, may God bless us. May he challenge us. May he speak to us his words of love so we know that we're valued. And that we can do the things that he has given us to do to love him back. Amen.